Welcome to Keystone Education Radio, the podcast for all things focused on education in Pennsylvania. Now here's your host, Annette Stevenson. This episode is part two of a two-part series. We are joined again by award-winning authors Will Wise and Chad Littlefield, who are the authors of Ask Powerful Questions, Create Conversations That Matter. We're going to finish up a fantastic conversation about empathy, listening, openness, rapport, and intention, and how that pyramid fits into effective communication and authentically connecting with the people around you. Thanks again for joining us, Will and Chad. This is part two. When we get to a place of dialogue, your needs are equal to mine. And I am more in a partnership with you. And I'm listening for understanding. I'm in a place of openness to hear what is actually occurring for you. I'm even willing to be reflective. And what happens is oftentimes if we're in a dialogue, you might say something that triggers or threatens a concern of mine. It may concern, it might uh, threaten just a fundamental concern that I have or one of my values. I then am gonna make assumptions and I'm gonna start judging. And as soon as I start making assumptions and start judging, it's so easy for us to move into a place of debate. And if I show up in debate while we're having a dialogue, if I show up into, with a mindset of debate, it's super easy and almost delicious for you to join me there. And it takes real leaders, a real self-awareness to go, oh, we just slid into debate. Mm-hmm. Now we're looking for somebody to win. Let me take a breath. This is a great moment to come back to your intention and say, remember the intent of this conversation was, and that can bring us back down. But the important piece is to stop the process when we're in debate and start asking some questions that look at the assumptions that were made that slid us up into a place of debate. Mm-hmm. Offered two real quick that I think yeah. uh, oftentimes debate, like uh, education's filled with mission driven people, even though we're just talking about apathy, right? It's filled with people who are in it for uh, the students, they're in it for not for the salary, for the, uh, the aim and the outcome and the difference that they can make. And so I think sometimes debate, debate is disguised as advocacy in meetings, right? So I'm gonna advocate for this student and it turns into this myopic, it's either my way or the highway. Like I'm gonna get this student, this IEP or else, right? And they're, they're so ingrained in that place that it's cut out the possibility for dialogue and questions and uh, collaboration in that way. Cause it's possible, right? That the people on the other side of debate it's possible that they also want what's best for your student or whoever you're uh, advocating for. But when you're in a place of debate, you can't actually hear that Mm -hmm. because you're listening, like your ears are not working and your defensive mechanism, mechanism, your amygdala, the part of your brain that's fight or flight. Uh, Will and I sometimes say it's rather than fight, flight, or freeze, it's fight, flight, or need to be right. Uh, And in a debate, right? That, that, that part of our lizard brain, um, that need to be right shows up. Yeah. Right. That's a great point. I love that you compared, you used the word advocate in, you know, the one side of a debate is like people say they're advocating for something or they're defending their side of it. So 
if we're understanding debate that way, um, really dialogue is what needs to happen for collective decision making. Is that accurate? Dialogue rather than debate is what needs to happen for collective decision making. Because if I'm understanding how you frame debate, if there's this, you know, each person has this stance that they're unwilling to concede any portion of, then you can't truly accomplish collective decision making if you're working from those positions. Is that accurate? That as you pondered that, well, I don't think dialogue makes decisions necessarily, right? There's some other uh, consensus, but there's some other steps there. I think what dialogue does is uh, breaks our brain out of the tendency mm -hmm. to uh, pick between one or the other, right? We're either yeah. uh, Democrat or Republican, where you're either right or you're wrong, you're either black or you're white. And, and, and often we see the world, and our brains are, for whatever reason, are wired to see the world in a very black and white context, it's either this or this. Mm -hmm. And what dialogue does is open up um, the color purple and orange and blue and all these other options, right? To get out of metaphor land, right? It, it opens up like six different pathways that neither side would have seen if you were in that debate, I'm going to win, I have this need to be right um, yeah. mindset. But it's, yeah. not the, it's not the end. You can't just like have a nice dialogue and then the whole group agrees and then yeah. you decide or-, sure. or choose, right? No, and I, I obviously, <laughs> yeah. right, there's more to it. But I guess what I was trying to find out is in any sort of collective group that's trying to make sound decisions on a regular basis, is debate any part of that? Or really does the group need to keep trying to get themselves back to discussion and dialogue? Or, or is there a place and time for debate? That's kind of my... I think there are some rare cases in which there is a place for debate if it is done intentionally. Okay. And so this would be a really clear moment of intent, right? Now, there are some people who find debate just so delicious. That's just how they show up, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. And you probably have some of those in your workplace, right? Yeah. But if you want to make a collaborative decision, look, so leadership is making something happen that wasn't going to happen anyway. And so the janitor could be a leader in a school because they're making things happen. They could, they could choose to be making things happen. That wasn't going to happen anyway. If you're a manager, your job is just to keep the system moving. Whatever the system is, whatever the process that's been in place, if it ever falls apart, you get your whack-a-mole hammer out and you whack it and put it back in place so everything is moving smoothly. And so teachers send their students down to the principal's office because they just had to whack-a-mole, right? That student in that moment wasn't fitting along with the protocols and the systems. Mm -hmm. But leadership is making something that wasn't going to happen anyway. So how does that fit in with debate? Could a leader recognize, oh my gosh, in this room right now, what we need is a debate could they help the room turn up the energy and say, all right, for the next 10 minutes, we're gonna play a game. And the game is, your job is to defend your side. Or, a really fun thing to do is, your job is to defend the other side. Mm -hmm. Let's take 10 minutes to defend the other side, bring as much emotion to it, try to find all the creaks and crannies. My intent is when we're done with this debate, is that we're gonna move back into the discussion because now the debate's gonna open us up to see possibilities that we didn't see before. We're gonna move back into the discussion and see what 
could we make happen that wasn't going to happen anyway? Mm -hmm. And that's where collaboration happens, right? That is where innovation happens. When I can take multiple different forms of thoughts and ideas and philosophies and meld them into something new to create a sculpture that we can all stand and look around and say, I contributed to that. Not I made that, but I contributed to that. And I'm happy with the result that we have. Right. I want to offer one for those listening. They're like, cool. I'm, I'm interested in, in this idea of discussion and dialogue, but like, how do I get there? Because I'm going to go into my media on Monday and uh, fill in the name is going to debate me on this. He's going to push against, he's going to push against, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. I think two really quick practical things to offer, uh, you know, uh, there are a number of tools to, to help uh, shift debate to dialogue. Two really practical things um, is one, typically you're debating uh, two scenarios. And so one really practical thing is to just ask the question, what's the third option? What's the third path here? Yeah. Or what is a third option or third path? Or how might we do this differently without either one of our solutions that we're uh, aiming, we're pushing toward right now? And then the, the second is to um, simply shift from speaking in sentences that end in periods and start speaking in a few sentences that end in question marks. Because when we ask questions of the other side, it does at least the first part of forcing our brain to hear what the other person is saying. Because typically in debate, you have two people who are talking, lots of words being exchanged, but very few of them are being retained and heard and remembered because the other person is thinking they latched on to what the person said in the first seven seconds of their uh, pedestal speech. And then as soon as they're done, right, the opposite of uh, uh, listening, I would say, is, is not talking. I would say that it's waiting for your chance to talk. Mm-hmm. Right. And so in debate, we're just waiting for our chance to talk. And the second they're done with their three minute deep, complex explainer, we respond to this one thing that we disagreed with in the first seven seconds of what they said. And so if we just let go of responding with a statement and we just ask a question that's not rooted in judgment, that's actually looking to seek to understand um, that one action can change a, a debate right in the middle of it to a dialogue. And I think there's a useful to be able to have that tool to pull out when you're able to, because the more common experience that I think people will bump into is that they're not the, you know, the facilitator or the wrangler or the leader of the meeting, but there's a debate happening. You can see that it's unproductive, um, but you may not have the title or the power to shift that from debate to dialogue, but simply inviting people to ask questions to each other or asking your own um, can do that right away, title regardless. Okay. That's and a- one, of the, one of those questions could be is, what was the intent of this? <laughs> Where did we start this conversation? Yeah. Okay. So um, sarcasm. Sarcasm is a, um, a way that a lot of people, uh, I think, implement humor in some instances. Um, and you talk a little bit about sarcasm in your book. So does sarcasm have its place, would you suggest, in healthy dialogue and authentic connectivity? And I'm going to relate this first to like the workplace. So, you know, maybe aside from personal life, in your professional life, do you believe that sarcasm can have a place? I do know that there are some workplaces that sarcasm is such a rich part of the culture that people have accepted it. Mm-hmm. What I think they're blinded to is what sarcasm means 
And so the root of sarcasm means to tear flesh. And we tear flesh with our words. And we use it often under the guise of humor. But often when we're being sarcastic, we are actually picking up a little dagger that's in our little scabbard and we're poking them right where it hurts most. Um, and so I got really clear about this as I was adopted into a home in which sarcasm was rich part of the culture. And so I got really good at it. And I could see the nuances. My dad could rip up anybody. Like he was just really, and noses, any size nose you had in our house was one of those things that we just picked on each other with. But what I realized is how it hurt. And especially when we use sarcasm. So if you love to use sarcasm, consider that if you're using sarcasm with something that cannot be changed, that is especially painful. Like I can't change my nose unless I'm gonna go see, <laughs> see a, what do they call plastic surgeon, right? And they actually modify my nose. If you're using sarcasm about things that can't be changed, that's an immensely painful. Sarcasm still shows up in my lexicon when, and I try to choose it when I'm looking at objects. That nobody has invested interest invested in. So I might be sarcastic about how my cell phone is acting. But if I would I use an Apple and if I was at Apple and everybody's invested in my cell phone, I might not use it because mm -hmm. those people have an invested interest in my cell phone. So generally speaking, especially in the educational realm, and if you're an educator, and I would say, even if you're a principal or a superintendent, if sarcasm is a part of your way of leading, consider that you are doing more harm in, than good. Mm -hmm. Consider that you are tearing flesh and you might think you're trying to bring some light humor in here, but if you're not really clear about what your intent is, people are taking those sarcastic remarks personally and carrying them away and either creating armor to come back or ammunition to come back at you harder or they're creating armor in order to create a defense against you and when they start creating a defense against you you're not going to see them they're going to stop contributing they're going to go into that place of resignation and start leaning back more and i think you know going back to the humor part i think it's I think there is a difference and this is just my opinion. So tell me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe that there's a difference between true sarcasm and just like tongue in cheek humor, you know, sort of wry, what I would describe as like wry humor. I don't believe is the same thing as sarcasm. Do you think that's accurate? Let me jump in with a different perspective. One of the uh, reasons I think the, the, second edition of the book is interesting as it comes from two perspectives and Will and I don't agree on everything. Um, and so to offer a little bit of dialogue, not debate about sarcasm, um, I, I would say that I, since Will has given me that, that route to sarcasm is to tear flesh in the, you know, the original uh, Greek. It's made me think a lot about the intention of being sarcastic because I am also, I tend to use sarcasm very often. I can say one way that I repeatedly have some, I have observed some data that sarcasm has worked well is 
when I'm using sarcasm with the intention of empathy. So I'll hop on a call with a client and they'll tell me a little bit about how things are going for them. And usually it's something in the realm of too much to do in too little time. And so I'll reflect back and, and sarcastically and say, oh, it sounds like you've had like ample amounts of time to just like sit alone in a chair and ponder the meaning of life, mm -hmm. right? I, that would probably fall into the category of sarcasm, but it's with the intention of saying, I hear you and I see you in this moment. And I recognize you're really busy and overwhelmed right. um, without saying that. Now, could you probably say that in a way that also the person wouldn't feel heard? And, and could you reflect and, and accomplish the same empathy and the same aim differently? Mm -hmm. Sure. So it's, I think it's, um, you know, there's not a chapter in the book that says like, here is how to use sarcasm because I think right. it's, it's much more frequently used as a tool and uh, displayed as a, you know, a, a common tool for someone who's being passive aggressive mm -hmm. to say something that's true without having to go through the discomfort of saying it as it is. Mm -hmm. That I think is most often how sarcasm is used, um, especially with people who are uh, really close to you. I mm -hmm. think I, I find that time, if I'm uh, really raw and honest here, I think I, when, when I use sarcasm to tear, tear flesh, I find it eking out in a conversation with my wife, which is like, which is maddening to think about, right? She's the mm -hmm. last person on the planet who I want to uh, uh, hurt or injure, right? Mm -hmm. And yet I think with my words, sometimes sarcasm uh, does come out in that. And so the, the more comfort level, the, the higher our comfort level with somebody gets, the more likely we are to get sarcastic potentially. Mm -hmm. Very few people like you meet at a networking event are, you know, are brutally sarcastic to the people they just met. Very few. Right. Um, and, and those people who are, you usually are like, whoa. And you, <laughs> and you, <steer laughs> you run clear. the other way. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You, you stop uh, conversation. Yeah. Okay. So just some, some nuance there. Yeah. That's, that's a good kind of second perspective on it. Um, so I wanted to ask you to talk about uh, openness. Uh, part of the sort of principles contained in the pyramid include, as we've talked about a couple already, intention, rapport, openness, listening, and empathy. So I wanted to focus on openness a little bit, which can be hard to achieve for some people, and especially in work environments, that can be a little uh, challenging, I think, because it puts oneself in a vulnerable position. So I wanna kind of hear from you about openness in professional environments, and also if there's a way to bring it into the situation we're in right now. Um, we're not even in the same room with one another in many of our professional environments because of the current pandemic situation. So is there a way to kind of talk about how openness can achieve, be achieved um, in a professional environment where folks are not feeling too vulnerable and then tie it to kind of where we're at right now? Is that achievable? I think the uh, quick response is, this is, this is one of the most common pushbacks that we receive from the book. If we're bringing this into a company, particular, particularly in the realm of HR, it's like, what do you mean ask powerful questions, create conversations that matter? Like how much we're at work, like we, gotta, we have this, we have to have this professional boundary or, or right. you know, and I think it's a really valid thing to think about and, and concern is the, you know, what is the level to which you share and disclose? And I think part of the reason that pushback is comes so often is mistaking authenticity and vulnerability for uh, really deep conversations about your secrets, mm. right? I think authenticity, and I would say you could have uh, an authentic and vulnerable conversation about the weather if you are being true and expressing your, say, your uh, honest thoughts, perspectives, ideals. 
I think um, when we put a mask on and pretend to be somebody who we're not in a, in a particular mode, mm-hmm. um, I would say that there you've done the opposite of openness, right? You've, cl- you've created uh, closed offness. And then the, the other quick thing is um, Google, a company that's got 100,000 plus employees a couple of years ago launched this massive internal research, re- research project to identify what are the characteristics of the highest performing teams at Google. And the number one characteristic that they found was not the, you know, the years of technical experience or the perfect personality match. It was the degree of psychological safety in that group, which is um, academic uh, and PhD language for, can I be myself when I show up at work? Hmm. So it's an interesting data to consider, Uh, you know, openness doesn't mean you need to share everything. Right. It does mean you need to show up authentically i think and there's a there's a pretty big difference between right i'm i'm authentic and open with many many people but they don't know everything sure. about uh, who i am in the world and i think that's very okay mm-hmm. yeah will any final thoughts on connecting authentically presently in our remote circumstances well in the relationship to openness i think oftentimes what gets in the way of me being open, and I see this in workplaces too, is my need to be right. And when I have a need to be right, I'm only looking for evidence that proves that I'm right. I'm only listening for the words that you support, that support my worldview. And so in relationship to openness, I agree with Chad. It doesn't necessarily mean that I need to share my deepest, darkest secrets or even the thing that's going on for me right now, which is really big. And can I show up at this gathering of three of us, knowing that the world is about to listen to us? Can I show up in such a way that I am going to be moved by something that you say or that Chad says? Am I able to receive a perspective that will change my own perspective? Am I willing to leave the place which I know I'm an expert and move into the unknown where I'm going to explore? And so sometimes when people are challenged by the openness concept, when we frame it as, are you an expert or an explorer? There's a way that that helps unlock it for people. Mm-hmm. As an educator, if I'm in the front of the classroom, I am the expert. But if I teach from the place of expert, I just create a lecture. Mm-hmm. But if I teach from the place of an explorer, then suddenly everybody else wants to go exploring with me. Right. And they pick up their tools in order to be able to do that. And sure, I've got a map. I've got compass that's going to navigate us through that. And every time I teach, I learn something. That's why I love teaching. And I'm guessing that's why generally people love to teach. And that's why they move into leadership positions, because it's in stepping into that unknown that we go on an adventure and we learn something. Mm. If I show up into a meeting in which I am the expert and I'm not willing to step into the unknown, my need to be right, which I'm saying is the opposite of openness, not closed. Mm -hmm. The need to be right shows up. I need to look good. I need to be valued. 
As soon as that is part of my mindset, then I've lost the present moment. And if I'm doing that from a teaching place, if I'm doing that from a leading place, I am teaching the past. I am leading the past. I've taught the students who I've taught in the past. I'm leading the, the people that I've led in the past. Mm -hmm. And I'm not in the present moment with your needs and your concerns and your dreams and your desires and your humanity. Mm -hmm. When I'm present to your humanity and I can be open to that and be moved by that and see the world in a different place because you see it in a different way, then that's when magic and collaboration and an adventure that we, makes us most alive, it is the place that we want to step into, even though it scares us. <laughs> So we have the, the benefit of uh, cheating a bit and recording this over video, over uh, Zoom. And uh, one thing I can see just in uh, energy, uh, you, Annette, and, and Will, is that we probably keep talking for another 72 hours um, on this. Uh, <laughs> I guess I want to offer, because we can't do that, I want to um, kick out, uh, before we start to uh, wrap and, and shift gears, I want to kick out, um, you know, Will and I exist on the planet to make connection and engagement easy for groups. And so um, we've part as part of our mission, you know, part of the reason that we created the book was to package these ideas and, and share them. We've also um, created a handful of um, card decks and other really practical, easy to use tools, which we've made digital versions freely available of um, to give access to everyone. And so um, as one sort of final tool to offer, um, if you if you were struck by this conversation or interested, um, would welcome you to check out um, our website at weand.me slash ideas. And we've got a ton of free resources and tutorials, um, segment of the book, um, things that you can download um, for free of charge and we won't uh, spam you or <laughs> send stuff your way. We created it um, simply to make connection and engagement easy. So. And second edition of Ask Powerful Questions is available everywhere. Amazon, wherever folks are buying books, correct? Indeed. Awesome. I want to thank both of you for uh, being with us. I know that we could go on and on, but I greatly appreciate all of this time and insight that you've given us uh, today. Thanks, Chad. Thanks, Will. I just love how you are showing up and the research that you did and the questions that you had really thought about and your desire to make a world a better place. So thank you, Annette. Thank you. Wow. I appreciate that. I, it was, it's enjoyable. These kinds of interviews are so interesting for me personally. So thank you. Thank you again. And on the website, we'll feature where folks can find your website. We'll include that and the book and all of that good stuff because we definitely want to make all of these resources available. Uh, to our audience. So thanks for sharing all that. Keystone Education Radio is a production of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. This episode is brought to you in part by sponsors Piper Sandler LLP and SiteLogic. Visit our website at keyedradio.org for more information on today's discussion and past episodes. Subscribe, share, and follow us on social media so you can stay tuned to new topics and interviews. This is Annette Stevenson saying thank you for listening to Keystone Education Radio. The views and opinions expressed on the Keystone Education Radio podcast are solely the views and opinions of our guests and do not reflect the views and opinions of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. Thank you.